The internet can be a terrible thing, but just every so often you get a real gift. And this past week I was, for whatever reason, Google searching my father, uh, John Edward Ryer, and I came across an article in the New York Times about my dad dated 1975. Uh, My father was the president of the world's largest teachers union, uh, the National Education Association, and he was elected to that office at the age of 39. And the New York Times did an article about my dad, complete with a very young uh, father on the cover. Uh, Interestingly enough, he will point out that his gray Uh, increased through my teen years. So I'm primarily responsible for the gray hair that my father developed in that season of life. Uh, My father uh, was a man of some influence, but at age 10, I had no idea. Truth of the matter is, is I didn't really care. And neither did any of my friends in Potomac, Maryland, where the wealthy and influential Washingtonians congregated. My friends and I neither had any idea or any interest in our father's positions in the world. We didn't know they were important players on the national political scene. But as I've gotten older and I've matured as a person, I've begun to appreciate all of the things that my father was carrying during that season in life, the pressures and also the authority and power that he carried and the influence that he carried in his life. And it has deepened my appreciation for a lot of the things that my dad had to do and has done for me. This is the case I can see with the President Obama's daughters, beautiful young women, when they were just little girls when they started. It's always amazing when you get to see them grow up right in front of your eyes. And they're lovely, and now they're going to college. And and it's so amazing to me um, because... I know the transformation. I can see it in my own kids' eyes, how they go from seeing you as daddy to my dad. When the Obamas moved into the White House, uh, President Obama had a big jungle gym playground built right outside the West Wing Oval Office windows. So as he was working 24 hours a day, he could at least look out the window and see his kids playing. And I can tell you, as a parent, There's no greater joy than watching your kids do something they love doing and and then they play. So imagine the joy of, you know, the father, his his watching his daughters play. And they would just come running, I'm sure, bounding into the West Wing and into the Oval Office. But I'm confident that as they've gotten older, they recognize that there is a decorum that they have to demonstrate. As they mature, they recognize that, yes, my dad is still father, but I have a growing comprehension of all that he is. I I think this is appropriate for our topic today as we look at Jesus' teaching on prayer. As you know, last week we talked about Jesus introducing this radical concept that when we pray, as he taught us to, we were told to use the phrase, our father, which was revolutionary especially to a group of people that didn't refer to God even by his name, God. They had all sorts of other alternatives. They, they had a proper understanding of the transcendence of God. He was other. He was holy. And they were so frightened of that that they never approached him as father and were outraged that Jesus did and taught others to do so. Now, right after Jesus teaches us, address God, our Father. He then tells us 
that we're also supposed to hallow his name. He gave five directives after telling the disciples that they were supposed to address God as Father. And the first was using the Greek word hagaizio. It is to set apart or sanctify, to treat as holy. And so what Jesus was in effect asking us to do and teaching us to do was to pray that our Father would be revered by all, including ourselves. The message, which is Eugene Peterson's interpretation in the modern vernacular of English, he, he, he interprets it like this, that the people would be requesting that God would reveal to us who he is. That in prayer, we'd be saying, Our Father, show us the magnitude of your majesty. This is the same message that had been sent to the Israelites by the prophet Isaiah, and that's why many of the Jews of Jesus' day thought it was so strange that he spoke that we were supposed to be intimate with the Father. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 29, 23, when they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy, they will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So clearly the Old and New Testaments rightly call us to stand in awe of God in addition to seeing him as father. But it doesn't answer necessarily the question of why. Now some maintain that God is just owed that praise and due our worship and so we need not know why or even speculate as to whether or not there's a personal benefit to us in seeing God as hallowed, gloriously holy. On the other hand, others might counter that all we need is love and that God is our loving Father and that's all we really should ever want to know. And because of that, we should just refer to him as our buddy and keep it there and not like venture off into this whole ethereal world of uh, speculating about God's infinite being. These are the same folks in many ways that would discourage you from seeing God as deserving of punishing humankind for their sin. And I would say that it's not an either-or proposition, that God is both our loving Father and our hallowed God. He is both our Redeemer and our victorious Savior and the one who atoned for our sins. Today, I'd like to consider together the teachings of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 on this subject. This is a man, Paul, who literally saw heaven and was able to at least come back and report to us that he saw it, even if he didn't give us tons of details. He saw the Lord in his glory, and he said in Ephesians 1 that he was set on praying for anyone who was a Christian, so thrilled that they knew and were entering into relationship with God through Jesus. He began to pray that they would comprehend anew their faith that they would understand and have wisdom and power, and he prayed that they would see this glory as well. You see, like a lot of the other paradoxes in the New Testament, our, our greatest need is not what we are pursuing. We're pursuing oftentimes our own glory in various ways, whether it's your desire for people to honor you or perhaps it's your desire to succeed at the highest level Maybe it's just your own vanity. Perhaps like me, you look in the mirror and you say, wow, I'm impressed by what I see. 
that's not really true about what happens with me. But I would just say, for some people, they're so good looking, that they're just, you know, they're so enamored with having others think they're beautiful. And in our culture of self, all this makes a lot of sense. We're called by Scripture to look, ironically, to the glory of Jesus. Like the great John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, he must increase, we must decrease. And that is where our soul will find unbelievable delight. In, in Paul's case, he will tell us that he was praying for us to understand and comprehend some things that haven't gone from here to our heart, from our heads to our souls. And the reason is because there are two things waiting for us, two benefits that wait for us as we see God in all of his glory. And one is hope and the other peace. So let's look at those today. Again, I read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, and my first thought for you today is this. Our Father must be hallowed so we can have hope. This is one of the reasons that Jesus would tell us, subsequent to saying, address him as Father, also revere him and see him as otherly. Paul writes this in verse 15, for this reason, and remember, we're going to come back to that, this reason, I have because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the, Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Who believe for what reason this is a great question if you're ever studying scripture and you see something like Paul says in verse 15 and we're jumping into the middle of this chapter and he says for this reason I pray for you well what's that well the verses before will give you the reason Paul in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1 are is going to effectively say what we said last week in addressing who we are as the co-heirs with Jesus the children of God Paul says in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, Paul is saying, we are the children of God. We are the beloved children of God. We are the heirs to everything that Jesus is heir to because of our association with him, because his spirit lives in us. When you became a Christian, he sealed you. This guarantees it. See, this reality that the Bible speaks of, most of us have a really difficult time processing such a thing because we are human. We are flawed. We are incapable of seeing into dimensions that we can't see into. And this is why Paul says, for this reason, I'm praying for you. For this reason, I'm praying for you. And so we go back and we look at verse 18. Our Father must be hallowed so we can have hope. Look at what Paul says. Having the eyes, this is what he's praying for. He's praying that we'd have in the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We're told that salvation is guaranteed. And Jesus wants us to not just know that in our head. He wants us to know in our hope. He wants to know in our hearts 
See, the obvious hope to which he speaks is that there is going to come a day when this world will pass away, when either we will die and go see the Lord or Jesus will return and we will see him face to face. And there is this reality in that, that if we see Jesus for who he really is, high, lifted up, exalted, the resurrected Christ of history, if we see him, if he really is that guy, that you and I are able to say, well, my troubles aren't going to go on forever. I do know that the difficulties I'm facing are at one point going to end. And this hope is real and comforting. At the same time, the deeper hope of which he speaks is a confidence that would only come if you're certain you're actually inheriting eternal life with Christ. Scripture teaches that it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to renew us so that we can believe. It takes the sealing of the Holy Spirit in us to guarantee our inheritance. And Paul prays that this same Spirit who dwells in us will enable us and help us to see, give us vision and wisdom so that we can actually see these truths that we've clearly professed to be true. And Paul prays that this Spirit will give us wisdom and knowledge of the glory of God. And as we know from Paul's letter to the Colossians, the path to the glory of God, the way to know the glory of God is through Jesus. Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me in John 14, 6, is said by Paul to be the image of the invisible God. Read with me from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. This is Paul's teaching. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, it's because Jesus is God in his being that he's not only capable of paying for our sins, he now sits and reigns and rules. Jesus is exalted now. He's not in the grave. He was resurrected, but he was resurrected to his high state of glory. In Matthew 28, it says, Jesus, teaching the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we're to go and make disciples. You see, knowing that Jesus is to be worshiped as the one through whom all things were made, we can take great solace that there is nothing else that has to be sacrificed, nothing else that could be done to assuage the wrath of God and atone for our sins. Jesus is perfect. What in the world could you and I add to what he's already done? You see, and we can see him as Jesus in the sandals and loving, and this is incredible important for us to know the gentle heart of the Savior. But if that's the only side of the coin you ever look at, that you, you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but you don't see the Lion of the tribe of Judah, you're missing out on a really important part. Jesus doesn't just talk a good game. Jesus is like strong and powerful and mighty and holy. He, he's God. He's to be hallowed. 
We need not fear the majesty of Jesus, the holiness of God, because he, Jesus, has completely paid the debt of our sins. And if he really is alive and on the throne, we could not be more secure if we tried to be. Seeing Jesus as the exalted king in all of his majesty enables us to rest confidently in a satisfactory debt payment. While we rejoice that Jesus, the gentle Savior, has gained victory over sin, we relax that Jesus, our substitute, has satisfied the needed payment for sin. The Holy One of God has completely and totally stood in our place. I've begun to understand some things about my father in my late years. My dad now is 81 and I'm 51 and as my son turned 22, uh, we're about the same distance from each other. And I remember when I was 22 how I didn't really think on the social calendar that dad was a huge priority. You know, and that's a tough adjustment for dads. You know, there was a time where you're like, dad, 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 can we hang out together? And then there's a transition that happens in late teen years where it's like, son, 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 can we hang out together? And I remember one time saying to my son, you want, when he was a teenager, you want to go see a movie? And his response was, with you? And uh, that was a tough day at the Ryer house. But I've begun to understand, when I was a, you know, when, just after college, I would go, you know, in my hometown, we, I would go with my friends and we would go to, out to a sports bar and we'd eat and we'd watch football and, and, and then I would tell them somewhere in the first like 30 minutes, oh, my dad's going to come by. And everybody would go, really? All right. Now, do you think it was because they just loved hanging out with my pops? No. He was going to pay the bill, and we all knew it. Every time he showed up, it was like, I'll have another. Thank you. You know, my dad was generous that way, and he knew that that's how he was going to get to hang out, that he was wise enough to know that that was what you do in this season of life. The key to my son's heart is food. And, And so... While his friends know I'm a minister and a college professor, and they're probably not as confident of my ability to pick up the check, um, I still try, even if it means going in the hole, because I just love hanging out with him. I love being around them. And, and what I'm trying to say is in, in the same way, Paul is saying you need to not only see him as your father who's tender, but you also need to see him as hallowed and capable of paying for your sins, capable of buying back you from death with the priceless life of the Holy Son of God. Jesus was perfect and given for our perfection, or our imperfection. Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Our Father must be hallowed if you and I are going to know hope if we're going to have hope, if we're going to be sure that our sins are paid for, we have to see him as glorious and resurrected. Our Father also must be hallowed if we're going to know peace. And that's the second thing I'd share with you from our passage. I'll start with verse 19, where in addition to praying, Paul, that we would know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, Paul says, and we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. See, there's something wonderful about knowing that the God whom you serve is capable of solving your problems. And if you've got yourself fixed on this earth 
and the Jesus who incarnated on this earth without additionally having in your heart and mind the notion of a God, a Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father and calls the shots, all authority in heaven and on earth granted to him. If you miss that, then somehow or another we get confused and we start thinking really fearful thoughts. Our God is now not able or powerful enough to do what he's going to do. Jesus was incarnate, but he now reigns at the right hand of the Father. Knowing that Jesus was not simply present on earth, but is now ruling as the all-powerful king, will give us genuine peace. And when you see that Jesus is really on the throne reigning, you not only have the confidence that he can be powerful enough to direct your life, but when the Lord reveals to you that this isn't something you made up in your head. When Paul says, I want you to have wisdom and revelation and vision. I want you to understand what you're talking about. I want you to really believe here what you say you believe here because it will transform your life like it would if you found out you were the heir to the Gates fortune. It would change your life, some of it probably for the worst, but it would change your life for sure. It would change your conception of everything around you. Jesus wants to not just say, okay, yes, I'm going to heaven. I know Jesus as my Savior. He wants you to see that you are connected to the glorious Father, a Father who should be hallowed. Our Father is our loving God, but He is transcendent above us. And in this way, Jesus teaches us that God's transcendence is this aspect of His nature and power that is completely independent of our material physical universe. Now we contrast that with what we talk about, a lot of Christians, that's all they talk about, God's imminence, which speaks to his intimacy with us. When we speak of his transcendence, we're talking about God's power and majesty. When we speak of his, his imminence, we're speaking about the, the nearness of God, the presence of God. Both of these things are simultaneously true. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one being, three persons. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. Jesus, the Son of God, glorified in his new human body on the, at the right hand of the Father. We will see him, the scars in his hands. Jesus is now reigning and ruling. This is our Savior. Paul says later in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 6, there's one God and Father of all, and this is the way he describes him, who is over all and through all and in all. Over all, through all, and in all. And this is such a really beautiful description of the Trinitarian God, who is authority, he is omnipresent, he is omnipotent, he is everything to all of us. And this is how Paul concludes his letter, or he concludes this section of his letter to the Ephesians. If you were to read through our passage again today and pick up with verse 19 and read through the rest of Ephesians 1 to 123, this is what Paul would say. He'd say, His immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God wants you and I to know not only is he our intimate father, he is our transcendent, holy, powerful God. And if, you don't, if we don't get this whole picture of him, a bunch of things start to get skewed in us. We begin to either be terrified of God or we become way too familiar with him that demonstrates an immaturity on our part, an immaturity that doesn't recognize really who he is. When I was in middle school, in addition to my dad, a friend of mine's dad was the top scientist for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission during the Three Mile Island Crisis of 1979. Another boy in the same school had a dad who was a senator and the head of the Judiciary Committee, the one who heads the, uh, the, the grilling of Supreme Court, potential Supreme Court justices. Another girl in my school had a dad who was a congressman who ran for president. And you know at that age what I cared about? That she was cute and they had a pool in their backyard. See, that's what mattered when you're 13 and 14 years old. I look back now and I think, wow, what I didn't know. You see, there's a transformation. You eventually mature past those childhood perspectives and see dads and the dads of your friends in their proper perspective. And in much the same way as a Christian, we're called to mature into a relationship with our Father where we become aware of how the one who we call Father is really powerful. And we really don't deserve anything like a teenager who's wondering, how come I didn't get what I deserve? We mature and understand that everything is by grace. We become more enamored with the glory of God that the Father we have is hallowed appropriately. The reality of the transcendence of God can give us peace to know that there is nothing beyond His ability. We're thrilled for His imminence his tenderness towards us. But we are empowered to peace by his transcendence. We are encouraged to have hope by virtue of the fact that he is perfectly holy and completely capable of paying for our sins. It was the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 31 and 32 that I find continuously encouraging What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, when you see God as Father but hallowed, when he reveals to us the glory of who he is, the the joy of being his child begins to absolutely overflow in us. See, the key to us knowing joy is not our own exaltation, it's our own reduction and his exaltation. We begin to see how valued we are. It becomes actually more valuable the more holy and righteous and incredible God gets 
All of those things make more sense to us now. That's what it means to grow in faith. And that's why we've committed to this 12-week season of prayer as a church, so that the Lord would break through what is for many of us an intellectual enterprise. I know that Jesus died for my sin, and I have my systematic theology, boom, 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 but it has not translated to a heart of worship and devotion because it's still just here. And God's saying, if you can see both sides of the coin, the transcendent, the imminent, the Father, and the hallowed Holy One, that you will then begin, I will then begin to see transformation. So let's pray together to that end, shall we? Father, we can't create anything in ourselves. Jesus, you made it very clear that without you we can do nothing. And so as a church, we have set out, we believe, by your guidance to use this season of our church's life to call out to you to transform us. And part of that is through our own prayer lives. And you've taught us to pray. You want us to know we are your beloved children, but you also want us to know as we grow and mature in you that you are the majestic Son of God. Jesus, we praise you for who you are, high, lifted up. You are worthy of all praise. We're still stunned that you would give your life for us. Father, we beg you to transform us by the power of your Spirit. We echo the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Father, we, we cry out to you to bridge this gap between our head and our heart that we would be devoted to you with the praise and passion that is due your name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus.